Okay, well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 11. And if you are, I usually would write this down, my apology for the delay. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, and please do grab one if for some reason you don't have yours so that you can follow along, you'll find that on page 1175 in that pew Bible, 1175, Philippians 2 and verse 1. As we come to Philippians 2, it's important we remember that which we've covered in Philippians 1. And it's been a few weeks since we've been here, so let me quickly recap. You'll remember that chapter 1 is like a cycle, uh, or even a circle perhaps. It begins by focusing on the church at Philippi in verses 1 and 2. Then it slowly transitions to speaking about Paul and his relation to the Philippians. And then it moves to just talking about Paul and his circumstances alone. And eventually it wraps back around to Paul's instruction to the Philippians. So it becomes cyclical in that fashion. Paul began with his introduction, which uniquely included the deacons and elders, indicating who the audience was. And therein it showed us that not only was this a letter to an amazing church, but it was a letter to an amazing group of deacons and elders. And in the admonitions that Paul brings forth, those admonitions are particularly highlighted to the elders and deacons in their role and seeing that this great church that the Lord has brought forth, that Paul founded, that it would move forward. And so we see that important consideration. And we've talked about how this is almost unarguably the most clear example of a God-honoring church in the New Testament writings. It is the only church in Scripture that does not receive a strong admonition or rebuke for things that are going on. Even as we've discussed, the church of Thessalonica, who often would be discussed as one of the great New Testament churches, receives the rebuke because they have so moved forward with their desire to see Christ return that they've given everything up. And they've walked away from their jobs and they've just decided they're just going to move into a commune and we're going to gather together and we're going to forget about the world. Well, that's not the task that God has called them to or us to. And so Paul rebukes them and even very strongly at the end of the third chapter of the second book of Thessalonians says the one who does not work is not to eat. And so no such admonition or rebuke exists here and it helps us see this great church the first address to the church was a prayer and it was a a prayer of participation one which highlighted this great church and that began in verse 3 and then Paul transitions midway through his prayer to address his perspective on the church at Philippi he showed his great love for them he showed his passion that's expressed here and is also his great desire for the success of the believers in this church. Something that strikes at the core of the responsibility of the elders and deacons. That if you have this wonderful church whom God has blessed you and gifted you to minister to, you have a responsibility to see that carry forward. You have to continue to stand tall. You have to continue to rise above, that, above the level of that church, which even becomes more difficult. For if you're in a church that is struggling and there's great weakness and great immaturity, then it doesn't take a lot to show yourself a leader. 
But when you're in a strong church, it takes a tremendous amount to rise up above, to lead, and to continue to grow above, to move that church forward. So this is the, the import as it relates to the deacons and elders. Paul transitions in verse 12 to discussing his own circumstances and how they're completely contrary to the outcome one would expect. Most would think that because Paul is in a, a Roman prison, this would mean ministry disaster and probably death. But that's not at all the case. Rather, the gospel is spreading through thousands of the Roman guards and even through all of Rome because he is such a rare duck being in prison and rejoicing in it. In delighting in the opportunity to proclaim Christ and to talk to the soldiers. Not fighting back, not being argumentative, not being someone who is cantankerous and difficult as a prisoner, but completely obedient. Everything that one might expect would turn out one way, and therein particularly negatively, rather turns out for good. Even as Paul's very life could end, which he acknowledges as a real possibility, and both the end of his life and his continuation having positive potential to them, he knows that he will continue on. He knows that he'll continue to minister to them because that's what's going to be for their best good. And because of this, he again turns from himself to the Philippians and he gives them a strong exhortation at the end of the chapter. An exhortation to powerful gospel ministry. Ministry that is carried forth in unity, in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the gospel. Powerfully unifying concepts that surface again in our text tonight. Not being restricted by fear, but enduring suffering. Because this is a blessing from Christ. Not just belief, but to suffer on account of the Lord. We know that all are going to suffer. Believers, however, suffer differently, don't we? We suffer with an, with an eternal purpose in mind. Everyone on this earth is going to suffer. It is part of the sin-cursed earth in which we live. And a quick glance through our prayer guide at the horrific effects of cancers, and these are but a smattering of so many in your family and in your friends around the world. All are suffering. But believers suffer with an eternal purpose, with a different perspective. And beloved, as we consider this situation in Jerusalem, were there to be large-scale attacks we can expect that it is not unlikely that those would move towards the United States and towards the church. Because, like it or not, be truth or not, Trump is seen by the rest of the world as a Christian, as evangelical, and those churches that would support that would be those that may very well become targets. Now, that doesn't mean that we ought to fear. That doesn't mean we need to get uh, all upset about that. As we've discussed before, we as the leadership of the church have taken extra efforts to make certain that we have security parameters that are as best as could possibly be, uh, short of turning our church into a, 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 some type of a stockade and, and locking the doors, which we will not do. But we need to understand that suffering could take a very different turn in our lives. It has historically. And that's exactly what Paul talks about, how you will suffer even at the end of, of chapter 1. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, 
experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And we, we've talked about all that Paul went through in those sufferings. And, and that could be exactly what we face. Well, as we consider all these things, it brings us to the question of our text in chapter 2. And with the strong exhortation to gospel living as well as to gospel suffering, and all following this powerful prayer, and all these amazing positive responses to what are expected negative scenarios, all these bring us to our text and our title tonight. I've titled our message from tonight, or for tonight, Where Does Your Mind Go? Where Does Your Mind Go? Philippians 2, 1 to 11 is our text for tonight. We won't get through all of it, but let's dive in. Let me read it, and we'll come back and talk about a few of the particulars. Philippians 2 and 1 begins, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where does your mind go? After reading this text and considering chapter 1, this is a great question. And in answer to that question of where does your mind go, we have three answers that arise in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 2. Our first answer is in our first point, and I've titled that point, Think About This. Think about this in verses 1 to 4. Paul starts verse 1 with therefore. He connects us back to the amazing discussion from chapter 1. Particularly the concluding application to gospel living and to proclaiming the gospel and to congregation building and to being ready to endure suffering. So because of all these, he now launches into this second chapter. The form of this incredible second chapter intro is a conditional statement. Now, what's a conditional statement? It is a statement that is like uh, you might have heard as a young person where your parents would say, if you get A's, then we will continue to pay for your college education. Um, Fortunately, my father never made that condition or I probably wouldn't have gotten very far. 
But fortunately, we have bright people with us tonight, so they may understand that better than I did. But it is an if-then situation. If this occurs, a condition, then there will be a result as because of the way the outcome of the condition occurs. So it is a conditional statement, and we see that by all of the if statements in verse 1. The, the, the interesting element of this is that the structure of our first point is similar to a hymn, in that it has varying lines with a repeating chorus. <coughs> Excuse me. Only here it's in reverse order. It's as if the chorus were first, and then the varying verses of the hymn which follow. It's actually just like the Christmas hymn that we sang on Sunday night, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Because how does that wonderful hymn begin? Go tell it on the mountain. And then it moves into each of the verses. So the chorus actually begins that song. Well, so also, our chorus begins our verse. And you know I love Christmas music, and all music actually, and these verses fall right in line with that love, particularly verse 1. This is in mind of one of the most, in line rather, with one of the most beautiful texts of Scripture, and one that is missed by so many. So we begin with the chorus in verse 1, which has four separate harmonic components. The first harmony is, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ. The whole first melody of verse 1 is set up as a rhetorical question, as if to say, is there any encouragement in Christ? The obvious and resounding answer is yes. And not just yes, but yes and amen and hallelujah. The, understand, the underlying question is really, is there anything that could be more encouraging than Christ? Not only is there any encouragement in Christ, but more so everything in Christ is encouragement. The word encouragement itself carries this idea. The Greek noun here is the word paraklesis. The, the adjective form is similar. It's parakletos. That's important for us because in John 14, 16, that is the word that the Lord uses to describe the Holy Spirit. The one who is the comforter. He is the parakletos. So, here, the Holy Spirit is the encourager, the Holy Spirit of God. And of course, Jesus is God. See a parallel beginning to develop? The one who is the encourager, who is the Holy Spirit, and the Son who is the Holy Spirit, or who is God. So now we have the phrase, if there is any encouragement in Christ. We can literally say, if there is any of the one who is the encourager, i.e. the Holy Spirit, that he is in Christ. Now, not only is the Holy Spirit part of Christ, they're one essence, are they not? Father, Son, and Spirit existing in one perfect essence in the Trinity. So again, it isn't just the question, is there any encouragement in Christ? But as they are one and the same, as the Holy Spirit and Christ are integrally part of one indivisible whole, 
so also are Christ and encouragement one indivisible whole that encompasses everything. If there is any encouragement in Christ, think for just a moment about that. Everything about Christ is encouragement, isn't it? Is heaven encouragement? Are you encouraged to achieve heaven through Christ? It's the only way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Heaven is the joy, the encouragement of Christ, and we ought to be excited about that. Is being free from sin an encouragement? Will you only achieve sinlessness through Christ in heaven? Romans 7, 24, and two verses later, Romans 8, 1, confirm those two conditions. Remember Paul in Romans 7 talking about the sin that he struggles with? As a believer, the things that he desires to do, he does not do. The things that he does not want to do, those he does. And then he gets to verse 24, and he just like rips out of the box, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? It's like, man, I'm just in a pit that I'm never going to get out of. But two verses later, he goes to Romans 7.25 and Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is, it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can that be? How can we go from a wretched man to having no condemnation through Christ Jesus there is the forgiveness of sin there is our release that is encouragement it's not me I don't have to worry about how I'm going to live this perfect spotless life and do everything down the line Christ is doing it in me that's an encouragement is being able to live in true joy an encouragement because true and full joy comes only from Christ John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. Our world doesn't understand full joy. They understand happiness. They understand pursuing happiness to the fullest extent. But they do not understand joy because those two terms are not necessarily linked Joy is the peace in all circumstances. It is the resolve that God is in charge. And, there, and it is the confident assertion that he has given us the hope of heaven. This is not what our world has. So are these things encouragement? Is heaven? Is removal of sin? Is living in true joy? Is complete peace an encouragement to you? You only have true peace in Christ. John 16, 33 says this very thing. John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. But peace is the foundation of all of our encouragement. If we understand we have the peace of Christ, it is, it is something that cannot be taken away because it is something outside of us. It is something divine that has been given to us. No one can take that away. 
whatever happens in our world, whatever happens in an election, whatever happens around the country or around the world, we can have peace, perfect peace of Christ. We could go on and on all evening speaking about these blessings. Is there any encouragement in Christ? There are so many. Every true encouragement is in Christ. I don't think we could ever exhaust this statement. It's incredible. If there is any encouragement in Christ, we could speak about the blessings of Christ that encourage us, the hope of Christ that encourages us, and on and on and on. Well, it continues on with the second harmony. If our first harmony of this chorus was if there is any encouragement in Christ, the second is if there is any consolation of love. That second harmony is if there is any consolation of love. Again, the irony and the rhetorical nature of the statement just scream a response. The word consolation is one we really have to understand here. Okay, it is not the same as like a second place deal. Oh, they didn't win, they got the consolation prize. No, 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 no. That is not the way this word is being used here. The word consolation is rather something of comfort or encouragement that is a basis of hope. As, as, strong, as strong and persuasive force. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And the basic meaning of the word is to draw near to someone. To whisper in someone as if in their ear. To be very close, always in a positive, always in an encouraging sense. This is so fitting as it connects with the word love. Because we have the, uh, the word agape for love, this is not phileo love, the friend love. This is not eros love, the sexual kind of love. No, this is agape love. This is unconditional love. This is the love of God that we are being comforted in, that we are being consoled with. The, the love that can never leave us. The God is the love that is not of us because it is divine. It is the Old Testament Hesed word, steadfast love or loyal love. What an amazing consolation exists in divine love. What comfort. Beloved, are we not fully consoled to consider the love of God? A contemporary song which describes the love of God as that which is rich and pure what else what else is more rich than the love of god or more pure or beautiful it's measureless and strong you, you can't you can't put bounds on it you can't measure its strength because it is immeasurable and it is without strength it's something that will endure forever it has no beginning and it will have no end from eternity past to eternity future the love of god continues on and that which belongs to the saints and angels' song. How incredible is this love of God? Let me read the lyrics from this song, By Mercy Me, and let them sink in as I read and consider what incredible comfort and consolation these are. The chorus is what I just described, but let me read it in the beginning in the lyrical form. O love of God, how rich and pure. How measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. 
it goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. How glorious is this love? How, how unfathomable is there any consolation? Is there any comfort? Is there any consolation or comfort like this? Can you tell me one? Can you tell me one thing? Can you tell me the delight and love and the nurture and affection and care of your spouse compares to this? As glorious as it is, it cannot. Can the delight and joy of an infant and a child in your arms that is precious and sweet and new compare to this love? It cannot. Nothing can. The real question is, can there be any real comfort or consolation without the love of God? Our third harmony is in verse 1. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit. The irony of simplicity, which is concealed in this powerful statement, makes a third powerful blast. The word fellowship is that Greek word koinonia, and it means in common or common. And, and it, it is the, what the Greek language of that day was called. It was called koine Greek because it was common Greek. And we've discussed this before, how there was a transition of this language from Alexander the Great storming and conquering the Roman world and taking classical Greek around the world and implanting his people into every culture and leaving them there as he recruited other soldiers and moved on. And as that classical Greek moved forward, it began to, to assimilate all of the other languages, and it attained what was called a common form, or Koine Greek. Well, this fellowship of the Spirit is this same common element. It is a oneness with the Spirit of God. It's living in common with God's Spirit. That is living in obedience. This is, this is the believer's union with God, as Galatians 5.16 describes. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. There are two paths in this life. And, and, and Matthew talks about the, about the broad and the narrow way. So also here, we're spoken to about walking in the Spirit and not carrying out or walking in the desires or the lusts of the flesh. Galatians 5.24 goes on to elaborate further. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So, having fellowship of the Spirit is living in union with the Spirit, is walking with the Spirit. That means that we have to be so saturated in understanding the Spirit of God living in us, so sensitive to His leading that we are in tune to our ever-present fleshly desire to sin, our ever-present impact from the world around us to draw us into sin, 
the ever-present attack of our enemy to make us sin. And we have to fight that. And as we do, as we have this fellowship of the Spirit, then we are able to wage that battle. And of course, this union and commonality with the Spirit is the same fellowship which is perfectly reflected in the harmony of the Trinity. Is there any disharmony between Father, Son, and Spirit? None whatsoever. Nor is there to be with us and the Spirit. The fourth amazing harmony at the end of verse 1 is if any affection and compassion. The word for affection can be translated as tender mercies. And the original of this word talks about the inward parts or the bowels. In fact, the King James Version actually translates this word as bowels. Because that which was being considered as the seat of human emotion. Compassion is a word that also closely connects with mercy. So to ask if there is any affection or any compassion with God is to ask the absurd. Both words have this compassion of mercy as we've noted and the definition for mercy is what not getting what we deserve closely akin to its parallel grace which is the unmerited favor of God both grace and mercy pair together here and help convey our idea of affection and compassion God is the origin and definition of these terms. Could we ever know grace and mercy without God? Absolutely not. God's care is perfect and providential. And again, the the contradiction by assuming that there may not be any is absurd. And that's exactly what our author wants us to recognize. Our four-part harmony chorus has begun with this conditional statement. A statement that raises a question as to whether any of these four harmonious elements exist. And the answer is a resounding yes. Absolutely they exist. They exist in abundance. In unmeasurable form. And our response is exactly the statement of our first point. Think about this. We could go on all night about this verse. We don't rarely spend one night on a verse. But think about that. Think about the power that's been in this verse. The encouragement that is in Christ. The consolation of love. The fellowship of the Spirit the affection and compassion, all our relationship with Christ. How incredible are our thoughts in this vein? An overwhelming consideration. And so now with this part of the condition established as true and undeniable, we're taken to the second part of the statement in verse 2. And verse 2 now becomes the second part of this condition. Verse 1 was the if, verse 2 is the then. Look at verse 2 with me. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul now turns to the first response to the rhetorical question in verse 1. And now we move to the first verse of our hymn. Having looked at the incredible chorus which resounds throughout the rest of these 11 verses... 
now we come to the first verse of this hymn. And the first thing to notice about this first verse it is, is that it is the same time signature as the chorus. Now I know, you may not be musical majors, and guess what? Neither am I. But we can all see this parallel dynamic. It's like a 4-4 four, four time signature. This is a time sign- signature like one of my favorite carols, Little Drummer Boy. I know it doesn't have the greatest theological depth. We won't debate that tonight. But it was one that I sang as a little boy and had a massive impact on me as recently as last night. What is the echoing refrain of Little Drummer Boy? Pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. Four-part beat. Pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. What is our first verse one? Four-part chorus, is it not? Any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion. Verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love too, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This 4-4 pattern repeats because it's carrying forth in parallel fashion each of these ideas. Okay, you're going to come sing that for me in a minute if you don't stop. Make my joy complete. By being of the same mind. Make my, he commands here, make my joy complete. I'm in prison, make my joy overflow. By this idea. And what are those ideas? We just want to cover them briefly. We'll come back next week. But by being of the same mind. That is, by having one focus, one heart, one mind amongst the church in Philippi. Notice the parallel of the encouragement in Christ. What is the same mind he wants? Know the encouragement of Christ. Be so overwhelmed. Be so in love with Christ that you are of one mind and one heart striving forward in that power continuously. What's the second one? By maintaining the same love. How does that parallel verse 1? If there is any consolation of love. Maintaining the same love is understanding the compassion and comfort of the love of God that has been given to us. Beautiful to see how he takes these individual aspects from verse 1 and now moves them to the church. Look at the third one. United in spirit. And how does that connect to verse 1? If there is any fellowship of the spirit. If we are functioning as the body of Christ, we must be united one in the Spirit. What does that mean? Are there two Holy Spirits? No. Is there ever to be a true separation in those of the body of Christ? No. We're to be united in Spirit. The only way that happens is if we are relying on the Spirit. If we are answering the question, is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Is there any harmony? Is there any unity? Is there anything in common between Father, Son, and Spirit? Everything. So also with us. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, and intent on one purpose. That being the affection and compassion of of God. Only now that affection and compassion is moving to the entire church. All of this the proper functioning of the church, beloved. And it is this beautiful first 
verse that echoes this resounding chorus that helps us understand what God is calling to us at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church today. Understand these things. Think on this. And now recognize how understanding the broad picture of God and His provision to us individually of believers, that's to saturate and surround all of our interactions one with another. We're going to see the, the, next, the next verse of this wonderful hymn in verses 3 and 4, and we'll carry a little more to discuss verse 2 next week. But for now, let's think about this. Let's allow these things to saturate our hearts and minds. There is more here than we could cover in the next year in understanding what Christ has called us to understand. So let us focus on these things. Let our hearts and our minds be saturated with these understandings because he is moving us toward what is one of the greatest doctrinal treatises as we get further on in this section of Scripture. And we'll be moving towards that as we come together over the next weeks.